This is a Federal News Network podcast. Should the government use its footprint in housing, disaster relief, and other sectors to force the electrification of homes and schools? One group called Rewiring America thinks so, and it has a long list of agenda items for federal agencies. Here with the details, Rewiring America's research director, Stephen Pantano. Mr. Pantano, good to have you in studio. Nice to be here, Tom. Tell us a little bit about Rewiring America. Who's behind it and what are its overall aims here? So we're a nonprofit organization with a national mission to prevent climate change and figure out ways to improve people's homes and lives through this one particular strategy around electrification. And for us, that means buildings, vehicles, and solar power systems, and really with the mission to eliminate all the sources of fossil fuel combustion in our homes and in the lives of everyday Americans. All right. And looking at your agenda for the federal sector here, I see assignments for HUD, FEMA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, Agriculture Department, Bureau of Indian Education, EPA, Energy, and the Securities and Exchange Commission, among others. So that's quite an agenda. Run through the highlights of what you would like to see happen. Let's start with maybe the disaster recovery scenario. Sure. Well, the pretext first for this whole report is that you know, we're just on the heels of historic climate investment from the Biden administration in, in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. And that program, as ambitious as it is, leaves a pretty substantial gap uh, still to the net zero goals that we have uh, for our economy and that the administration has put forward. And we recognize that there's a lot of levers that the federal government can pull to help close that gap through its own operations and some of its policies and programs, uh, such as disaster relief and recovery, housing, et cetera, as you mentioned. And among other things, we would like to see the government take a position of leadership and start setting an example for the country, for commercial building owners, for real estate organizations, for individual homeowners about the benefits of electrification, moving to clean and efficient electric appliances over fossil fuel alternatives. And some of the ways we can do that is through, for example, making sure that the many hundreds of thousands of applications for disaster relief that come in after floods or wildfires in the country, that we build back those homes all electric so that we're not installing new furnaces, new gas stoves, and other fossil fuel devices that are going to be in place for 15 or 20 years and that we're taking advantage of every opportunity that we have uh, really to move towards cleaner alternatives. And you mention also in this list of recommendations having to do with financing of home purchases, too, yes. especially for existing home stock or, or also new home stock. What would some of those be? I guess that's the Federal Housing Finance Agency is where that would come in. Yeah. When you start to dig into all the ways the, the federal government impacts our economy, that's really a lot of subtle ways, right? And among those is they back the vast majority of mortgages that are written for individual homeowners when they purchase a home. And we think, uh, you know, home turnover, that's typically when you bring in your painters and your contractors to update the flooring and you haven't maybe moved into the home yet. That's a perfect time to take advantage of opportunities to renovate that house. And if you bought a house with a 15-year-old gas furnace and you know that you want to replace that furnace in a few years anyway, why not package up a loan for purchasers to make that transition right off the bat, roll that into their mortgage product included in their 20 or 30 years of payments at a very low interest rate. It's really a much better solution than some of the alternatives, which are to wait and pay a much higher interest rate for something you're going to do in a couple of years anyway. 
And this would be whether the homeowner wishes to or not, or would this be something mandatory? No, I don't think any of what we're suggesting here is mandatory. Really, it's creating opportunities for people who wish to make the change. Obviously, we think there's a good reason to pursue a lot of these changes. It saves people, in many cases, huge amounts of money on their energy bills. You reduce the combustion of fossil fuel in your home. So if you have a gas stove or a furnace today and you're burning fossil fuel in your house every day, you're injecting benzene and a bunch of other harmful air pollutants into your house every day. There's a lot of evidence coming out that gas stoves, particularly in homes with poor ventilation, so low-income families in particular with uh, under-resourced housing, that these gas stoves really bump up the incidence of childhood asthma and cause all these other health effects. Do you we know think, that every chef in America hates you for saying this, right? Uh, uh, there, Actually, you'd be surprised. There are a number of professional chefs and restaurants coming forward now doing induction cooking demonstrations, the induction cooktop. I have one in my home. I just got it recently. It's much, much better than uh, the coil burner on grandma's stove from years ago. So there's a lot of opportunities for sure. you know, temperature control and all that. That makes Yeah, it I a, saw my first one of those in 1967, so it's not a new idea. <laughs> It just right. not really caught on right. that much. We're speaking with Stephen Pantano. He's head of research for Rewiring America. And what I didn't see in the report was how the grid can support all of this because it can't do what we need it to do now. And as traditional sources of electrical generation disappear, the grid is getting weaker and it's getting less stable. And you can't have both happen at once. So what is the prescription for electrical generation in the United States? So obviously, if besides you, nuclear, sure, if you electrify everything and you get rid of those fossil fuels, you obviously need more electricity, and that electricity needs to be transmitted and distributed around the country, and it, we need to have a smarter grid and all of the technology that comes with that. And because those investments, we don't want to be like you know Baghdad, where well, every night it goes down, and that's the way course. people live. Right? Yeah, that's obviously not an outcome that anybody would want. These investments are happening anyway, right? I think there are plenty of plans out there, federal state, local, through the interconnects to upgrade transmission and distribution and make sure that there's enough electricity where it needs to be at the right time. What we're also talking about here is a 20-year transition, right? This is not something we're not going to electrify the entire country tomorrow. That's not going to happen. So we have time. We have time to plan. We have time to think about other infrastructure investments. So right now there are gas utilities that spend hundreds of billions of dollars and have plans to spend hundreds of billions more on replacing gas pipes and infrastructure to distribute gas to homes, which we would argue is not going to be necessary in the next 20 years. So we have this mysterious group of organizations called public utilities commissions, which make decisions about how those investments are made and how those electric and gas utilities make money and how they build their costs into people's rates that Mm -hmm. they pay. And there's an opportunity here to move some of those gas investments into electric and move the money where it needs to be, right? So these plans are in place. They're happening. We're trying to draw attention to the infrastructure needs as well as the transition at the same time so that we don't get sure. flat-footed. And let me ask you about this. If the United States does all of this, India and China, which are actually the biggest polluters now, I think either one of them individually is way more than the United States. What about them? Because they're not buying this whole idea. We have a responsibility to take care of our own home, right? There are plenty of ways that the federal government works with other countries through the climate agreement. There was recently a biodiversity agreement, I think, that was just signed a few days ago. There are conventions for working with other countries and ways of 
using political pressure or leading by example that I think set a good example for other places. I would argue that people in India have just as much a desire for clean air as people in the United States and that their government ultimately will take action to try to clean up the air. They already do in many cases. So I think this is, as in many ways, we see news now that the Inflation Reduction Act is creating political pressure in Europe and other countries to say, why don't we have big infrastructure investments for climate like this? Can't we do something similar to what the U.S. is doing? I think a similar effort by the federal government to electrify its own operations, to bring its supply chains along, will also and could also lead by example and bring other countries and show show the way, right? This is a really great opportunity for U.S. leadership. I'm guessing you don't drive a 79 Oldsmobile Electra with an eight-cylinder, do you? I did drive a 74 Ford uh, Mustang II for a little while. All right. How about now? Uh, nowadays, I have a Volkswagen, but I've yet to buy my first electric vehicle. All right. Well, that makes two of us. Stephen Pantano is head of research for Rewiring America. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a copy of that agenda at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, p- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes and um, so I was I was drawn when I I, and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought well you know take a look at it and see see, you know throw uh, send in my information and lo and behold I I I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism and, 
And, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to 
uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.